every Sunday morning, the whole Asian community, hundreds of people in the Asian community came out to watch these big three-hour Bollywood extravaganzas. You had to have stamina to watch these movies. Hello, welcome to This Is My Cinema. This podcast from the British Independent Film Awards takes a seat with some very special guests and explores the cinema that made them who they are. I'm Rihanna Dillon. And I'm Michael Leader, and together we're having a very lovely time talking to some incredibly talented guests about not just the films that have inspired them, but also their perfect night out at the pictures. We want to know their ideal cinema, if they could show any film there, what it would be, and what snacks they'd be sneaking in. Or not. So today we're very excited to share our conversation with composer Nanita Desai. And Michael, it's well established that you're a massive film nerd, but arguably you're an even even more massive music nerd, aren't you? Well, I don't know what the measurement for nerds is. <laughs> is that metric or imperial? I don't know, but I'm definitely sitting right next to hundreds and hundreds of records that we've boxed up because we've just moved house. I'm just counting down the minutes until I can open that up again and, uh, and, and throw on some vinyl. So this week was a really fun chat for me, getting to speak with Nanita. A real thrill. She did the music for the incredible documentary for Sama, which won the Best Film Award at the Biffers a couple of years ago and she's just scored the documentary The Reason I Jump which is well worth seeking out. So here she is, the fabulously eloquent Nanita Desai. Nanita Desai, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. So the podcast is called This is my cinema and for the duration of this conversation this is your cinema and we love to kick things off with this fairy tale imaginary dream palace situation where you have your run of a cinema for the evening to show a film of your choice and we like to start things off asking what film comes to mind if you could show one to us for an evening okay uh, this is a, this is such a challenge for me one film it's not going to be one film I'm sorry but actually this is one film that I haven't seen yet that I'm choosing oh. because I saw the trailer for Spielberg's West Side Story <gasps> recently and I'm a huge fan of the original West Side Story which happened to be on TCM the other day so I caught it and I was engrossed in it and then I saw the trailer for the new West Side Story. When a filmmaker remakes a movie I think that's very very dangerous territory. It's like the the remake of Psycho I remember and, and, and it was recreated shot by shot and I was thinking why are you doing this and then I saw the trailer for West Side Story. I just love the songs, the story, the music it's so beautiful and you have to treat something like that with great respect and, and I think Sp- looking at the trailer, Spielberg has done that. So that would be my dream film, actually, to watch in the cinema. So, Rihanna, this podcast is really paying off for us. Not only have we had so many personally curated evenings at the cinema so far, we're now getting a sneak peek of Spielberg's I big film it. six months before its release. This is a first <laughs> on This Is My Cinema. It's so exciting. 
But Anita, do you have a cinema that comes to mind, the perfect venue for this big review screening? Again, there are several. It depends mm-hmm. on the film that I'm watching. If I want, I mean, I love the experience. It's, it's all about the experience of going to the theatre. So, and I must admit, I'm a, I'm very spoilt because I'm a member of, a privileged member of BAFTA. So I get to go to all the previews and, and screenings at the private cinemas. And so they're really lovely. But if I'm paying money to go to the pictures, then if I'm watching a big tentpole movie, then I, I, I don't live too far away from the Odeon or the Empire Leicester Square. I love the big experience. I love seeing a film with hundreds of people for those big movies, like the, the big, the latest Bond movie, you know, and then I'll, I'll make the effort. And I, and I love watching films in Dolby Atmos, so you're totally immersed in the soundscape. And if I'm watching a British or a foreign indie movie, then I do love experiencing luxury the Curzon Mayfair I love the Curzon Mayfair because it's got this I didn't know this but I I went in one day many years ago and I saw this incredible ceiling it was swept away by the interior design I did a bit of research into it after I went there and it's got this iconic ceiling of beige and deep maroon it's like going back to the 60s like Jane Fonda's Barbarella or something and and I discovered it's one of the finest surviving cinema buildings of the post-war period so that's lovely the interior of a cinema is really important to me and the, the Bertha Dock House, the the Curzon Bloomsbury is really lovely because it's all underground. So you go in into this very unassuming building and you take these lifts or these staircases down several levels and it's made of it's like a subterranean complex of corridors and you've got these grey concrete walls. It's like going into an MI5 agent spy coven or a 60s underground bond lair. (laughs) And I think it's just shutting out the outside world and being cocooned in this underground lair, you know, these beautiful, warm, enveloping spaces that just puts you in the frame of mind that that you can just escape and and immerse yourself into the world of the film. Do you have a favourite cinema where you've watched a film that you've worked on and you think that your work sounds best (laughs) in that particular screen? Oh, oh gosh. I actually went to the Picture House Central a few weeks ago because they've got one of the few cinemas in the UK which has Dolby Atmos. And I watched my plug, plug. (laughs) Uh, I watched um, The Reason I Jump, which is my latest theatrical film. Actually, I saw it at Sundance for the first time, way back before COVID times, you know. And that was incredible. You just, uh, I love the cinemas at Sundance Film Festival. It's the first time I went. And because they turn everything into a cinema, they turn school gymnasiums, huge giant buildings into makeshift cinema. And you have a couple of thousand people piling in. And that's that's a great way to see a film. But yeah, I love the Picture House Central. It's got great screens. And and sorry, and then the Everyman, you know, in terms of luxury, the Everyman, Chelsea is, is lovely. I love those big sofas with enough armrests to hold a three-course meal. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be coming to the three-course meal later. (laughs) That's a really beautiful tour of some of the best cinemas in London. Literally the weekend just gone, I moved away from London, so I'm I'm pining for it right now. Already? Oh, dear. (laughs) Did you grow up in London? Were you going to these cinemas as a kid? I did, yes. I still live in London, born and brought up in London. And my first memory, actually, of going to the cinema was, I must have been... 
My first ever memory was not in London. I was on a holiday with my parents in the Isle of Wight. And it's a very, very vivid memory for me because it was a Saturday afternoon, two o'clock in the afternoon. I think I must have been about, I don't know, four or five years old, I think. And it was pouring with rain and we thought, what are we going to do on this rainy day on our holiday? And we went to the local cinema in the Isle of Wight and the Lady and the Tramp was showing and that was it was it was an animation and I just loved the songs and that was it was just such a I remember standing there in the pouring rain thinking I want to go to the cinema and it was that was lovely but my early memories in London <clears throat> of going to the cinema are filled with I used to go I live I was born and brought up in Balham in southwest London and I didn't realise, but there were so many cinemas in the neighbourhood. And there was one on Balham High Road called The Ritz. And every Sunday morning, the whole Asian community, hundreds of people in the Asian community came out and used to congregate and go to watch these big Bollywood, three-hour Bollywood extravaganzas. And so those were my early memories of about four or five years old, being taken to the cinema and experiencing. You had to have stamina to watch these movies. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience. I fell in love with songs and, and melodies that way. And then my dad used to take me to the Streatham Odeon. There were two cinemas in Streatham, the Streatham Odeon and the Streatham ABC. And we used to depending on what we're showing it used to take me to the cinema on a Saturday afternoon and in those days we used to get our money's worth by sitting through a film twice so we'd watch a movie we'd watch a Bond movie at one o'clock in the afternoon till about three and in those days no one chucked you out so you used to sit there for another 20 minutes watching all the Pearl and Dean trailers and ads and then I thought right now we have to watch it again so so I have to I had to suffer a movie for the second time but watching it for the second time was great because I then used to pick up on all these subtleties and details I thought oh what's going on here because I knew what to expect I remember watching Clint Eastwood in Firefox which was dire I think at the time so my dad used to take me to the cinema which was a real treat that's amazing what a unique experience I've never heard of that before but it's a great tip yeah it's a great, is, yeah, a yeah it is and then at secondary school I'm, I'm, this, is my, this is my my life in cinema didn't have much pocket money and didn't have the money to go and sort of hire a movies or something. So at secondary school, I set up the film club, the school film club. And I used to go to the local video shop. And I used to spend half an hour scouring the shelves looking for a film to watch. And then I'd take it to school once a week and I'd get about 15 friends. And I'd book a classroom with a big screen and watch after school with what I'd make them watch my film choice of film and it would be something like Ghostbusters or rom-coms like When Harry Met Sally or Sleepless in Seattle, <laughs> good old Meg Ryan and so that lasted a while and then I went to university and I joined the student newspaper and, and I thought I've got to find a free way to watch movies. Joined the student newspaper and became the university film critic. So that was oh, wow. really smart because, yeah, Very. because then I used to get invited, used to get tickets for all these previews of all these new releases. And I used to go to all these film screenings with all these other incredibly well-respected film critics and journalists. And I remember Barry Norman, he used to have this BBC film show 
and he was a you know it's like a hero of mine and so he used to sit in a dusty old cinema in the middle of Soho bright sunshine outside and you went into this dusty dark little Soho screening room about 30 people and I'd get to watch all these amazing films with just four or five other people there and they'd all be sitting there making notes and so I thought oh I better make notes so <laughs> I better <laughs> better write you know what's this film about <laughs> so, so I'd watch all these movies Nikita and Luc Besson's films, Nikita and Leon and Betty Blue. And and I was so enraptured by the music, of course. My introduction to film was through, really, through music and loving film soundtracks and film scores. That was how I managed to navigate getting to watch the latest films for free through my early days. <laughs> you're, you're giving us so many great tips here about how to see films for free. <laughs> so... At what point did you start then focusing on the music? And was it the music that was exciting you about the films you were seeing? Of course, you mentioned that it was the songs in the Bollywood screenings you were going to. But at what point did you start thinking, oh, someone's written this music and that's what's interesting me? When I was about, I think about seven or eight, my parents bought a turntable of vinyl. And she used to take me to the Harrods summer sales. And we used to go to the record department in Harrods every summer and we used to buy all these old cheap secondhand sort of vinyl records for about 50p. And they used, I had no idea what they would be and we'd just end up with a whole batch of them and come back home. And they were film soundtracks. Ennio Morricone's scores like For a Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad and The Ugly or John Barry. That really developed my love of melody and of course the Bond songs. So that was my introduction to film music. And then I became a member of my local library which had a record department and I used to traipse off to Putney Music Library and borrow LPs and then of course make my own mixtapes and, and copy them <laughs> and, uh, and I remember watching Havana, is it Sidney Pollock who directed it? Uh, Robert Redford was in it and, and Havana had this fantastic score, I think it was by Mark Isham, but just the most stunning music and I, I was really into world music as well, having sort of loved Peter Gabriel's stuff so I, I discovered The Last Temptation of Christ which was a dreadful movie but the score really stood out for me. Actually, it wasn't a dreadful movie. It was The music was great and the film was really interesting, but the two just didn't quite work together for me and there was a disconnect there. And so as a standalone work, the soundtrack to The Last Temptation of Christ by Peter Gabriels is just seminal work. Really, really phenomenal stuff. Well, that's interesting that you talk about that disconnect between film and score. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you can make as a composer what causes that disconnect do you think well I mean I can tell you what causes the connect for me if if that's mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's when I'm writing a score for a film I have to be totally totally connected with it in terms of because it's my job to serve the film and its needs and to serve the director's vision so I'm a little bit like a method actor I'm in my recording studio and I tend to gravitate towards very dark subjects dark storytelling 
so I will immerse myself. I I sort of live, try to live through, imagine what it's like for the actors and for the for the character, or if it's a documentary. Well, I, I do a lot of true crime or really films about dark political subjects and genocide and murder and serial. You did for summer. For summer, yeah. And having grown up as a sound because my first love really, obviously apart from film music, was I worked in the industry as a sound designer. And so that taught me so much about telling stories through sound and obviously the filmmaker is there to tell the story through the cinematography and the editing and the script and the acting and all those different elements and then the music is the one element that a filmmaker generally cannot control they have to relinquish their baby to this strange person who's sort of just landed in the at the end of the project sometimes and music is like a hidden character in the film I'm scoring the underbelly of what's really going on what is this film really about and I'll give you an example of just an absolutely stunning score I went to see went to the cinema to see Moonlight a few years ago and I remember it was a, a November afternoon. It was a Wednesday on a November afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> you, you remember wow. these moments, you know, they're, they're yeah. significant moments in my life, you know. And I thought, oh, I, need, I have to go and watch this film called Moonlight. I know nothing about it. And I read the strap line. And I thought, I'm not in the mood for this film. It's Miami. 1980s about addiction and it's working class community I'm going to be depressed you know I went in with these preconceived ideas of what this film was going to be and boy I was so wrong because I came out of that film and I was bawling my eyes out for me it's one of the best films ever I just think it's just astounding astonishing filmmaking by Barry Jenkins and the score by Nicholas Brittell is is just superb and there's that connect because it confounded all my preconceived ideas and what was beautiful about that is that the music really represented the growth of the character Chiron at these three pivotal moments in his life and everything about it is beautiful and I love to be proven wrong. That was a very important moment for me, having those stereotypes broken. And that's what I love about film. You know, you just don't know. You just, I mean, I, I remember watching, I'm so pleased that uh, De Corno has received the, the Palm Door. And I wa- remember watching Raw a few years ago. I, I'm, I subscribed to movie, movie. And uh, and I watched Moob, uh, uh, Raw, and it's a fantastic film. I recently watched, I must admit, I, I missed it the first time round, but I watched Portrait of a, a Lady on Fire. I thought, what is this film? And with music, there's no, there's very little music in the film. And there's this one scene around the campfire on the beach, I think it is. And these women are clapping and dancing around this fire and you hear this incredible music. And when you have the mute, when you do have music, it's so it has so much impact because you haven't had music. So silence is like music to me. Silence is really important in a film and how you take the viewer on that that emotional journey the same way that a filmmaker is taking you on a journey. As a composer, I want to take you on those highs and lows and the excitement and the peaks and the troughs of shaping and crafting a 
the entire soundscape of a film and not just the music but with the sound effects as well we did that in Forsama in fact the two most powerful um, I'm, this is great advertising for a film composer you know the two most powerful scenes in that film when I've spoken to people have no music on them and uh, it's uh, the caesarean birth uh, which is incredibly powerful and it seems to go on for an eternity and the funny thing is in reality that birth scene went on for twice as long and it seems long in the film and then there's another scene in the film where these two brothers bring in their third brother who's died into the hospital and we had music over those scenes originally sort of lush syrupy over manipulative music and we thought, well, why are we... Let's take the music away. And it was so much more powerful without the music. So it's about serving the film's needs is is so important. And relinquishing your ego. We just started stripping music back, thinking, what, do we really need it here? You know, and, and just making it very, almost as at one with the landscape of the film. So that that's really, really important to me. It's fascinating hearing you speak about music being part of the texture being part of you know, sculpting the sound world of the film for the experience for the audience. And it is really fascinating reading about your background, working in, in sound design, music engineering as well, and some amazing filmmakers and musicians you've worked with up until the point that you started composing music as well. I wonder what other things you learned along this sort of wayward career that you still use today when you're right, sitting down to write music for a film? When I worked with Peter Gabriel, I... I had the privilege of working with incredible record producers like Daniel Lenoir, who I have huge respect for, and great engineers and great musicians. And the one thing that I learned was not technical or musical even, but it's about working with people, working how to get the best out of a musician. I cast my musicians very carefully and if I get the casting right, then half the work is done. And it's like a director when you're casting your actor. There's a thing I read about David Fincher. I think the way that he likes to work with when at, at this particular time, he was working with the red camera a lot, which opened up his world because he could just do take after take after take, you know, and not run out of real surreal analog film. And what David Fincher does is or did on this particular film I was reading about is that he does take after take after take and where he did 70 takes with an actor until he sucked the performance dry out of the actor and then he went that's it you've got it that's perfect and I'm the opposite I'm the opposite of that if you've got, got the right musician when you look at the the spontaneity and the magic of someone performing or improvising it's like this bell curve after two or three takes you've reached the, the maximum of what you're going to get out of that person. It's going to be really fresh and spontaneous. And then after that, if you do it again and again and again, it's just, it becomes stale and expected and, and contrived and dull and it loses that sheen. And so when I work with musicians, I like things to be kind of work very fast I mean we, we has to be super accurate and in tune and in time and all of that that expression is something that you will get very very quickly out of them you want to get that that spontaneity that's one thing that I've learned 
when they're scoring. And do you have to research a lot about a culture or a story before you can begin composing for it in the same way that people who might be acting in it will have to research it? My way of deep diving into a film or any project is to do my research. I love research. That's my favourite period of time you know everything is torturous after that but (laughs) (laughs) you know I find the the actual process of composing is quite torturous for me I feel that I have to go through pain you know it's like writing a novel or creating a painting you know I have to suffer for my art (laughs) so I procrastinate that's my way around it I I put it off I put off that moment of creation because I'm terrified of that moment on every project I go through the same pattern once I'm into the flow then I enjoy it you know and I sort of get you have to get into the creative zone but so yeah so research I mean on the reason I jump I read the book upon which the film was based and read all these scientific papers about autism and and how autistic people perceive sound and and music which is incredibly important to them and I love having true collaboration I love talking with the director and getting into their mind and understanding their vision of of the film but then they also want me to come up with my own ideas as well so so I love that toing and froing and finding the right path on a film and authenticity and integrity is really important to me you know telling being true to the story and and finding the truth in in a story and 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 creating a unique sound world to inhabit that world because my background is in world music, I love to study music from other cultures and, and we're on Zoom so you can see my wall of instruments and I've got a collect every one of the instruments on my wall on the wall behind me has a story of that you know, a personal story. Like I'll I'll have a an instrument made for me personally, a custom made instrument or I'll I like to travel and I'll go on travels and I'll pick up an instrument from some weird obscure corner of the world i love i love that i wanted to ask about the difference between scoring if there is any difference between scoring for fiction versus non-fiction because with Fasama, the reason i jump and going back a few years uh, the confessions of thomas quick they're all documentaries they're very different types of documentary but they have such cinematic scores to them is the approach different to the conversations you're having with the director different than with a fictional feature well if it's a creative documentary of feature documentary then no there's no difference in the way that I approach it you know it'll tends to be quite thematic in a fiction film you'll have themes for characters or places or themes for ideas and it's the same thing with documentary and I'll have themes for for characters and themes for ideas I mean with the reason I jump because my most recent film so we devised a concept for the score and you have all these aspects of autism and I wanted to take those different aspects and translate each one of them into a way of expressing it through music but with documentary you do I mean there's obviously a lot more there's a lot of dialogue and sometimes the music can be bolder with fiction because you know everything's very implied so you want 
the music to have a strong character in fiction. And not saying you can't do that in documentary, but because there's so much dialogue, um, you have interviewees on screen that sometimes that you have, the music has to dance around the dialogue a lot and be a lot more subtle. So really I'm shaping the music around the dialogue. So if someone says something of great significance, I'll then punctuate it with something musically afterwards to reinforce that. And I mean, with For Summer, it was quite the opposite. Every film is different. Silence was really important, being minimalist. And But even with For Summer, for example, to get to the heart of the story, it came quite late in the day, actually. I found this musician, this Syrian refugee, who plays the violin beautifully, and I didn't get a clean, pure sound for the violin like a classical Western violinist. The sound that he created was this dirty, rough, edgy, textured sound that totally mirrored the visual look of Aleppo, which is this crumbling city all around you. The sound that he made reflected the the aching heartbeat of Aleppo. Those kinds of elements, even the reason I jumped, I brought in this violinist talking about casting your musicians. On the reason I jump, I brought in this cellist who is autistic herself and she's the cultural ambassador for the National Autistic Society in the UK and she's this amazing cellist as well. And she came to my studio and I played her some scenes from The Reason I Jump and they're quite moving, quite emotional scenes. And I turned around, I had my back to her, I turned around and she was crying and I thought... Oh my God, Elizabeth, what's wrong? Is the music that bad? And she said, no, no. She said, she said, the music's lovely. It's just that, she said, I feel everything that the characters are feeling. I've experienced what they're feeling. And that for me, it was such a huge win for me because I saw the film through her eyes and I experienced it in such a personal, authentic way. It was just so beautiful. If I could ask one nerdy question, Fans of soundtracks and film scores are very divided about what the best way to listen to a film score is. And going back to your days where you'd be getting from the Putney Library, the records, listening to them at home, to now where you can go and hear it in your Dolby Atmos setting, where is the best place to hear a score? Is it in situ in a big cinema or is it at home with your headphones on on your turntable? For me, I have to listen to a score in connection with the film it's a totally different listening experience and so the most important thing is the score was written to be seen you're serving the film it was was written to be seen in conjunction with the film so I have to watch the film but that being said I think soundtracks are wonderful because you create them to be heard as standalone pieces of work in their own right so when I release a soundtrack I'm kind of cheating a little bit because I write these ambitious themes and then by the time they're in the film, they've been bastardised and stripped back and chained and they evolve so much. They lose their meaning when you listen to them on their own. And so when I release a soundtrack, I take the original themes of the film and try and create a running order. I spend a lot of time crafting the different experience of, of reliving the film through the music afterwards and that can be really beautiful so like with the reason I jump or for summer I went back to the original themes and and their the fullness and the richness of them and 
created the running order and and remixed the music so that you could even though the music's the same it's still you're just listening to it in its full glory and I, I find that a lovely experience but there are so many film music fans nerds fans sorry (laughs) 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 michael is both (laughs) (laughs) there's a big debate within the community of when you release a soundtrack should it be in the running order of the film or just listened away from the film and you're just taking your your listener on a different experience i love going to the film music concerts they have lots of them at the had lots of them at the royal albert hall and i've seen it was a great way for me. I, I mean, I wasn't alive at the time when 2001 A Space Odyssey was around or what else did I see? A Gladiator or Interstellar, I think. And you see the film on the big screen and then you have a real orchestra playing the score along with it. And that's, that's event cinema. I mean, that is really great. But I can only do that if it's a film that I know incredibly well. I saw Taxi Driver on the big screen and I'd always loved that film. You know, the opening neon lights on the car window on the taxi and uh, and Bernard Herrmann's neo-noir jazz score playing. It's just an incredibly powerful combination. And then I thought when I, you know, when I saw it on the screen and I heard the orchestra, it was it just was an incredible moment to I I was it brought tears to my eyes because Bernard Herrmann's wife came on stage afterwards that was very moving to hear that iconic score and watch that iconic film in reality you know in person it was really moving 2001 a space odyssey I remember watching it's a film that I grew up with and I remember going remember going to the Kubrick exhibition at the Design Museum a couple of years ago, which was really, really interesting, really brilliant. And then I saw the film and I listened to the orchestra playing the score and it was a totally different experience for me because I all I could do was count the number of times I kept hearing the Blue Danube through the film. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like 13 times and I thought... Damn, how did he get away with it? Because if I repeat a theme, my directors will give me a bollocking. You know, you can't you can't repeat that, you know. You've touched on so many films throughout this chat, but is there one film moment that really stuck with you that you're really glad that you saw with an audience on the big screen? I remember a couple of times I went to the Odeon in Leicester Square. And it was a huge event. I went to see Gandhi. I got tickets to go and see the premiere of Gandhi, I think. And I think I sat behind Neil Kinnock I think, at the time. <laughs> but there was this circle of emptiness around him. No one wanted to sit next to him for some reason. <laughs> that's what I remember but yeah I watched Gandhi this three hour epic movie which is just wonderful with Ben Kingsley the everlasting memory I have was of this huge organ coming out from underneath the stage and and you'd hear this organ playing uh, being played this organ music and the musician and the organ would sort of lift up from the bottom of the stage and that was that was just and me sitting there with a little ice cream and um, so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that was great, and um, and I went. I got. I don't know. I was a huge fan of Barbara Streisand, 
So I, I, she's like a polymath for me. She knows an actress and uh, director and incredible singer. And I got tickets to see Yentl, the premiere of Yentl, which uh, I went with my mum because I, I was too young at the time to go with friends. And so she took. So I went to see Yentl, and that that blew my mind. That was at the Odeon Leicester Square, and having the same organ experience introducing the film. Those were really really powerful. Gosh, so many films here. So much to to go away and catch up on. To to bring us back to the cinema, the dream cinema event. We talked earlier about some cinemas where you can have a whole three-course meal on the armrest of your chair. But the final question we like to put to our guests is, what are we eating in this dream scenario? Are you a fan of taking snacks and a drink into the cinema? If so, what are you taking in or not? No snacks. (laughs) I cannot eat or drink when I'm watching a film. I must admit, I do enjoy, if I'm going to the everyman, I do enjoy a glass of wine just to sip on. Or if I get to the cinema early, I might have one of those really expensive, exclusive, tiny little pots of ice cream, you know, before the film starts as a treat. But I can't stand the noise of popcorn or crunching or crisps. I mean, why do people feel the need to eat in the cinema you're there to what you're there to watch a movie you know when I when I watch a movie I want to savor every I want to savor every word every shot of cinematography every or the sound effects as it's whistling past me uh, you know through the speakers I don't I want slurping chewing crunching and this and then of course the secondary effect the smells you know of food mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. just it's just really really puts me off so that's my other pet hate people who leave as the credits start Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and is that your film fan brain saying that or is that your composer person who's worked in you know i've noticed uh that when i go to an industry screening people are incredibly respectful they'll sit there through the entire credits in silence right through to the bitter end so that you see who the distributor or the sales agent is but it's like a busman's holiday isn't it but but i mean i don't need to stay there because i can look things up on imdb but i love to listen to the music uh, the end credit mm. music because when i I score a film I'll write the end credit music and it's it's like a breather it's like you're allowed to breathe and absorb the experience that you've just had and it's every single second of that film has been designed to take you on this emotional journey and then you get people rushing past you, you know, in the cinema so and, and I've noticed the only people if I go to a to a normal cinema the only people that stick around for the end of the film are people you know they work in the industry. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know that they're in the industry. So their son or their daughter is is in the credits somewhere and so they're sticking around to see their <laughs> name. I went to a reading of Mamma Mia and I took my stepdaughter to see it. I think she was about uh, 10 years old. And it was great because in the end credits... Everyone was stamping their feet. It's the most animated I've seen an audience get. (laughs) They're clapping their hands and stamping their feet in time to the music. And actually, you asked me one film that I would show if I could take over a cinema. I think it would be Mamma Mia. Oh, so not West Side Story. Well, maybe. I don't know. I think, I don't know. I just love Meryl Streep. I think she's just, Uh she's iconic. I mean, there is 
she's like she's almost like the, in the acting world the equivalent of De- well um, uh, it's a bad comparison I was going to say David Attenborough but I mean she's just she's like a goddess isn't she she's just there's just nothing she can do that's wrong I think we can stretch to a double bill because I love the picture you've painted for us here if we did have this glitzy preview of West Side Story at the Odeon Leicester Square as you're taking your seats they've got the organ the old organ back there uh, as people are taking their seats play maybe playing a few versions of tunes from the musical itself maybe there'll be an, an old school intermission in the middle because it'll be quite a long film I'm sure that's where you're allowed maybe some of your ice cream in yes. the foyer because there's no drink <laughs> no food (laughs) in the actual theatre. That sounds like a really wonderful evening at the cinemas for me. Yeah, that's going to happen this Christmas, I think. It's going to open up. So that's my Christmas cinema experience, I think, with Spielberg, West Side Story, maybe preceded by, I don't know, Mamma Mia on Christmas Eve or something. Oh, that sounds dreamy. They need to decide. Thank you so much for joining us on This Is My Cinema. It's been a pleasure to talk to Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Rihanna, Michael. It's been lovely. That was so fun. Thank you so much. That's so cool. Thank you. That was so much fun. I loved hearing about her intro into like the love of cinema was partly through being a university critic and how she got to sit in those tiny little cramped screening rooms with people like Barry Norman and all these... I mean, for a film critic myself, that was a really nice thing to nerd out on. And also quite similar to my own experiences a few years later. It's quite intimidating being surrounded by people who are all scribbling away in a notebook. And I just... I have to admit, I can't read my writing if I write in the dark, so I've never like even tried, so I really commend her for doing that. I don't think anyone can read their handwriting. <laughs> it's all for show. <laughs> when they're scribbling in the dark. I loved hearing Nanita talk about all of the cinemas of her life, giving us this real tour of London cinemas from Leicester Square all the way to the picture houses, the Everyman cinemas as well. I think you can put together a really great London cinema crawl from that chat we've just had, and I'm up for that. You might need a few days. and you won't be allowed to do any drinks while you're there no shots nothing it's completely dry crawl (laughs) maybe in between while you're walking between the Odeon Leicester Square and the Empire you can grab a slice of pizza or something (laughs) (laughs) sounds ideal if you have enjoyed listening to this wonderful chat then we have loads more on our feed for you to consume we've talked to James Norton Adil Akhtar Sarah Gavron and loads more thanks for listening bye This Is My Cinema is a Little Dot Studios production for Biffa. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It's produced by Jake Cunningham, Ellie Aitken and Harold McShiel. And we're edited by Content Is Queen. Content Is Queen.